I get to come back now this morning and I get to share with you the quintessential message that most pastors take it on the chin for. Right? I get to come back and I get to talk to you all this morning about giving and the importance of giving and the importance of, of all that kind of stuff. And I realize that in doing so, that may bring up a whole host of preconceived ideas and notions about pastors and churches. Most notably is all churches want is our money. Right? In fact, my uncle who is, you know, uh, he just takes a very sarcastic view of, of the television preachers, right? And he'll just immediately say, dig deep into your pockets, kind of thing. That's his opinion. And I get it. I get it. And so, nonetheless, I think every once in a while, it's important for us to just kind of take a moment, if you will, a moment of pause which is what we're going to do today. Normally, we've been in the book of Psalms. In fact, we've been in this book for the entire year. We'll be back in that in two weeks, not next week. Next week is our annual celebration, but the week after that. And so for us to take a few moments once in a while and for us to kind of be reminded, if for no other reason, why we give, why giving is important, why even in a local church such as Summit Ridge Community Church, giving is an important spiritual discipline. And I'm going to call it that, a spiritual discipline. There are many spiritual disciplines, and there is, dare I say, not even potentially an exhaustive list of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines can be anything from prayer to fasting to reading scripture to praising to singing to all of those sorts of things, okay? And I'm going to offer into that um, cornucopia. How's that for a fallish term? Cornucopia of spiritual disciplines, also giving. And so this morning, uh, I want to just take a moment out of our regularly scheduled programming, that is being in the book of Psalms, to talk to you and share with you about giving. And this morning, as I do so, I want to get a bit personal about it. I want to get personal about it. I, you see, sometimes I think when it comes to giving and, and sharing messages about giving, sometimes, and it must be effective because I think it's used quite extensively, is that um, uh, guilt trips can sometimes be used, right? I'm, I'm not aiming to do that, and I hope that the text we'll look at today is not aiming to do that either. In fact, here's the beautiful thing about scripture, and specifically in the New Testament, there is never, ever, ever a reason to give out of guilt. Let me say that again. There is never, ever, ever a biblical reason to give out of guilt. If you are giving because you feel guilty, because you've been guilted into it, let me just stop you right there and dare I say this, chances are you were given a non-biblical reason for giving. You should never, ever, and I use that intentionally, you know, absolute terms, ever, never, all those kinds, that's absolute, always, absolute terms. Um, by the way, generally those are not very good things to use. Just saying in marriages and relationships, like, you always do this. You never do that. Um, I digress because I don't want to talk about giving. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, it is not a biblical reason to give out of guilt. It just isn't. And we're going to see that once again here in 2 Corinthians. But here's the thing that I want to share with you this morning from my point of view, and that's why I want to get personal with you. 
is why I give. I want to share with you a little bit about my journey. I want to share with you this morning a little bit about the reasons why I give, why I do it, why I am passionate about it. And, and my hope is, is that as we look at today's text out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and, and maybe also for me sharing a little bit of my own personal story when it relates to giving, that maybe my hope is this morning you might be able to resonate with some of those things. That you might be able to actually say, yeah, 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 I, I kind of I see that, Dan. I think that kind of resonates in my own life as well. And, and so that is kind of my hope, is that if for no other reason you might resonate with some of the reasons that I might share, that I might, that I will share with you today as to why I give, and that maybe it might affirm, it might inspire, but my hope is it will not guilt you. It will not shame you. It, and I'm serious about this, church. I'm serious about this, okay? It will not do any of those negative things that instead we might have, my hope is, a, a little bit of a better understanding, a biblical understanding, if you will, of giving, okay? Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay, I haven't lost you yet. You haven't checked out. You're not writing on a grocery list on your sermon notes. <laughs> list of tasks that need to be done for this week. All that kind of, you'll have plenty of time to do that later, trust me. But for right now, I want us to focus in on 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take that out. If you have it on your phone, take that out as well. Um, use that. We'll have the text uh, on the screens on either side of me as well this morning. But there are, as we look at this text, I think some pretty, for me at least, some pretty powerful reasons as to why I give. And I want to share those reasons with you this morning. The first reason is this. I love to give because Jesus loves to give. I love to give because Jesus loves to give. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. And the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. This is not the first letter that he wrote to them. This is now the second letter that he has written to them. And if you know anything about the church in Corinth, um, either I or other pastors who have, who have shared about the, the church in Corinth, they were a church that had some incredible um, advantages, some incredible potential, some incredible great things happening there, but they also had some things that were kind of messed up, okay? And what I love about the scriptures is the scriptures doesn't hide the frailty, the sinfulness, the brokenness of human life, and even that in his own church. These letters, particularly 1st and 2nd Corinthians, were written to a church that was struggling to live out their faith in the context of Gentile background, Jewish background, and just trying to figure how in the world do we function as believers in this world that we live in right now. Have you ever felt that same struggle? Yeah, I love that. I love the fact that Paul doesn't hide the fact that you're a great church, but you ain't perfect. You're a good church. You've got some good things going, but you are messed up over here. We need to we need to address these things over here. He's addressing all sorts of things. There was sin in the church that, you know, there was, there was even about how they were doing communion, all that kind of stuff. But in the second letter, which is where we are today, he touches on a really incredible positive thing that this church was doing. And this is where we're going to pick it up in chapter eight, beginning the verse one. He says this, now 
We make known to you, brothers and sisters, the we being Paul and his team of people that were with him, people like Luke, John Mark, and others who were traveling with him. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God given to the churches of Macedonia. Now, this is not Corinth. This is Macedonia. He's talking about another, another set of churches in Macedonia, which is not too far from them. That during a severe ordeal of suffering, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of their generosity. For I testify, they gave according to their means and beyond their means. And they did so voluntarily, begging us with great earnestness for the blessing and fellowship of helping the saints. Now, understand this right away. Did, did, did you catch did you catch the attitude of giving of the Macedonian churches? They weren't forced into it. They voluntarily did it. Any sort of giving needs to be voluntary. Any sort of giving needs to be voluntary. We should never be coerced into giving. We should never be forced into giving. And if I or any other pastor ever stands up here and says the following phrase or even something like it, you better give or else it's time to go. It's time to go. You better give or else. By the way, that's another relational statement that doesn't make relationships better. Ultimatums, threats, kind of stuff, because that's what that is. And all we have to do is just add on the phrase before that. Jesus says, oh, Give or else. Ooh. Do you know who I fear more in that moment? Not you all. The one who said it. The one who said it. And so I love how Paul frames the generosity of the Macedonian churches, which, by the way, were not as wealthy as the church in Corinth. We're not as well off. We're not as abundant in their wealth as the church in Corinth was. But nonetheless, Paul says that they gave voluntarily. They said, yes, we want to contribute to the saints. Now, what was going on? What's with the saints? What's going on here? Verse 5. And they did this, not just as we had hoped, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Thus we urged Titus that just as he had previously begun this work, so also he should complete this act of kindness for you. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all eagerness in the love from us that is in you, make sure that you excel in this act of kindness too. I am not saying this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love by comparison, by comparison with the eagerness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, he became poor for your sakes, so that by his poverty could become rich. Now, Here's what was going on. The saints that Paul is referring to are the saints in Jerusalem. Around this time, there was a great famine that was occurring not only in Jerusalem, but was pretty much all across the Roman Empire. And by the way, this, of course, wasn't the only famine, but this was particularly acute. This was particularly rough. You see, in those days, in the Roman Empire, the breadbasket of the Roman Empire was Egypt. Egypt produced much of the grain that the Roman Empire depended on. Now, here's the thing about Egypt. Egypt has the Nile River. It's a wonderful river. It's a beautiful river. I don't know. I've never seen it. I've only heard good things about it. Um, but nonetheless, I've seen pictures, okay? 
I've never seen it in person. But nonetheless, I've seen that and I've heard the jokes, right? Um, we all heard the jokes. But nonetheless, it was not uncommon in Egypt for the Nile River to do two things, as rivers and bodies of water oftentimes do. One is to flood, and the other is to not have enough. One is to be in drought, and the wonder has, and the other is to be just at flood stage. And so at this time, most likely what happened is the Nile was flooding, therefore it ruined the crop. Therefore, there was a shortage of food, and as a result, there was famine in the Roman world. Around 45 AD, Emperor Claudius was ruling at that time, if that means anything to you. But nonetheless, so now there all of a sudden there were people who were suffering because they did not have food. Now, here's the thing. Rome had a backup plan. They had Syria and Jordan, who were also the breadbasket, not as plentiful as Egypt was, but they too, when Egypt at this time was experiencing a flood, Syria and Jordan experienced drought. So now all of a sudden you had ruined crop there and you had ruined crop here. And therefore, there was a, an incredible amount of food shortage as a result of that. So here is what we see going on is that we now have the first um, humanitarian effort led by the early church or in the early church's history was to help alleviate the suffering of the people, particularly in Jerusalem, who seem to have been hit the hardest by this famine to help alleviate their suffering. And the churches that Paul planted, the churches that he visited, in many ways were all too eager to help alleviate suffering. Truly. And that's what I love about our church. We step up when there's a need. Truly. We step up when there is a need in our community or there's a need in our community outside of these walls. We step up. And in fact, let me just say that is in generally the case when it comes to brethren, is that we answer the call when there is a deep need. Even if we don't have a lot, we still want to be a part of helping alleviate the needs of others. Oh, I might not be in the best situation, but they are far worse off than I am, and I want to help regardless. That's kind of in some ways the Macedonian church's attitude. Yeah, we don't have a lot, but man, we are still better off than our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are suffering even more than we are. Yes, please count us in. We want to give. We want to even give as much as we can, even more so than that. And Paul, I'm sure, is almost saying, no, 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 hang on. It's great you want to give. I love it that you want to give. Don't put yourself in, in, in the same need as they are by your giving. Yes, we will, we will take, but remember, be careful. That's how eager they were. And so he comes to the church in Corinth and he reminds them, guess what? You all committed to also give. Fulfill your commitment. Do it. Do it. Oh, and by the way, Paul uses the example of Jesus Christ. And he said, as I've already read in verse 9, he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, he became poor for your sakes, so that you, by his poverty, could become rich. And then he says and explains about how Jesus became poor for our sakes. In other words, this is how I can't help to think that maybe Paul was referring to Rome, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, and he says this as, as Paul writes this letter and this section to the church in Philippi. He says this, Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. 
that he who existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As one person I think aptly noted, Jesus went from riches to rags so we could go from rags to riches. Jesus went from riches to rags so that all of us could go from rags to riches. And by the way, Jesus held nothing back. When I mean that Jesus loved to give, he gave all of himself for us. Now, I'm not saying that I can ever, ever come to the same level of giving that Jesus ever gave, but at least I can try. And as a follower of Jesus, I am to be like Jesus. I am to look to Jesus. He is my inspiration, my guide. He is my Lord and my Savior. And I look to Him, and although I cannot give in the way that He gave, I can certainly do my best to give as much as I can because of what He has given to me. And by the way, I'll be honest, in my own journey, I never deserved a single thing he ever gave me. And by the way, I'm not just talking about grace, which is huge, by the way. Grace is huge. Don't ever forget that. Grace is a given, is a gift rather given that we don't deserve. Let me tell you what I think that means for me. A grace, a gift given that I don't deserve. You know, I don't deserve to be on this platform. I don't deserve to be your pastor. I don't deserve to be a dad. I don't deserve to be a husband. I don't deserve to live in a house. I don't deserve to have the things that I have. I, I don't deserve any of it. And yet I justified in my mind, well, I worked for it. I worked for it. Yes, that has some, some legitimacy. But let me just say this, out of all the most successful, and I mean the wealthiest people in our country, you think of Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, all of these incredibly wealthy individuals. Let me just give you a little highlight about their success. Their success was never done in a vacuum. They didn't become successful on their own. They became successful because of the environment they were in, the families they had, the people who were willing to take risks and invest in the, what they were starting. They didn't become successful in a vacuum. And neither did I and neither did any of us. The things we have, the things we enjoy, yes, we work for them. But remember, it wasn't done in a vacuum. It wasn't just because I worked for them that I had those things. It's because also I have those things because of the family I grew up in, the opportunities I had to go to work, the, 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 the people who believed in me, and most importantly, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who gave us a mind and abilities to do what we get to do and to apply those skills and that knowledge to things that give us money in return and we use that money to support a wonderful lifestyle. We are not successful because we just worked hard. If that was the case, there would be a lot more people successful than you and I. If that was the key. Jesus loves to give. And that is a beautiful thing that Paul presents here. And so out of that, verse 10, Paul says the following. So here is my opinion. I love that Paul just is honest. This is not Bible. It's in Bible. But Paul is very, very apt to say, this is my opinion, okay? This is my opinion on this matter. 
It is to your advantage, since you made a good start last year, both in your giving and your desire to give, to finish what you started, so that just as you wanted to do it eagerly, you can also complete it according to your means. Paul challenges, but doesn't guilt the church in Corinth to say, hey, you gave great. I just, in my opinion, I think you should finish it. Give the rest. And he doesn't guilt them into doing it. I love that. I love that. And using Jesus as the example, again, no one should ever be felt guilty to follow Jesus. No one should ever be made to feel guilty and shamed to accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. They should do so willingly, not out of coercion or being forced to do it. Period. Period. All right, that's the first reason. Spent a lot of time on that reason. It's important, y'all. Got to start with Jesus, right? Got to start with Jesus. If you don't start there, where, where are we going to start? With me? We don't want that. I don't want that. Really. Number two. I love to give because I too have been in need. I love to give because I too have been in need. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11 and following, Paul writes the following. To finish what you started, so that just as you wanted to do it eagerly, you can also complete it according to your means. For if the eagerness is present, the gift itself is acceptable according to whatever one has, not according to what he does not have. I love that. Give out of what you have, not what you don't have. Don't make yourself impoverished to give to others. It's not a good financial piece of advice there okay it's not good paul says give out of what you have not what you don't have for i do not say this so there would be relief for others and suffering for you but as a matter of equality at the present time your abundance will meet their need so that one day their abundance may also meet your need and thus there may be equality i give because i too have at one point been in need And in that time, I received help from the church, from, the Christ, from, from other brothers and sisters. Let me give you a powerful example. When I was growing up, um, my family and I grew up on welfare. We lived in government housing, single-parent home. My mom raised three of us, and I got involved early on in a church, and I loved this church. I came to know Jesus in this church, it was a United Methodist Church, and I'm proof that even in the United Methodist Church, you could come to know Jesus. Um, I was baptized in that church. I was baptized on Christmas Eve, fifth grade. Remember it. Um, I loved this church, and I was accepted into this church, and it was where I discerned my calling to go also into ministry. But what I saw most importantly is that even there were times when my family and I, and I'll never forget this, that, that we didn't have enough food in the house. And the only thing I could do was to go to my own church's food pantry and ask for help. And they helped. They gave us food. And you know what else they did? They didn't shame me for it. They didn't make me feel next to nothing for it. 
My church helped me when I needed help. My church not only helped me by giving me food when I needed food, not only for me and also for my family, but my church helped me to feel accepted, to experience that beautiful grace that Jesus Christ has offered, that I could be in an environment where I never knew that I could actually be a Christ follower, and that more than that, I, maybe I could even serve him as a pastor. I never thought that that would ever be possible. I, I, just, I just never knew that. That I could be part of a group of people who would pick me up. And by the way, I lived about a half an hour from the church, if not more, which in the Midwest, that's a long way, okay? I realize in the West here, that's chump change, you know? But here in the, in the Midwest, that's a long way to get to church. There's a lot of churches between my house and that church, but I loved that church. And there were people who would come out and pick me up. There are people who would do anything for me. And now I have the opportunity to do things for others who are also in need. Maybe you know and have experience with that. There may have been times when you have needed something. Maybe you needed a babysitter. Maybe you needed help moving. Maybe you needed food. Maybe you needed a job. By the way, my church gave me a job. I was a janitor. I was a janitor in high school. I loved it. I got to be at church all the time. And that was a big building. It was a historical building. It was Four levels. It had an elevator. It, had, it was a big, big building. I even had to use um, um, one of those um, uh, buffing machines to buff the tile floors. Have you ever used one of those things? Oh, I had Popeye arms. <laughs> for any of you who ever used one of those buffing machines, I mean, those things, they take you for a ride kind of thing. I mean, I loved it. I got to shovel snow and salt the sidewalks. And for those of you who never experienced that, may you never have to experience that. But I got to mow the lawn. Oh, I love mowing the lawn. I love mowing the lawn. It's just mindless time that I could think about other things. I love that fresh grass smell, right? By the way, you did studies on that. Do you know what that smell is? Do you know what that smell is communicating? The smell is communicating the grass is dying. That's what that smell is. The smell that I love is the grass crying out, I'm dying, and I want to say, it's just a haircut. It'll grow back. <laughs> right? So I, I, I love that. My church supported me. My church traveled with me. They even gave me some money towards college. I loved it. And now guess what? I'm in a position where I can help others. You see, I don't know what it is, but for me, being in need now inspires me to say, yeah, I've been where you've been. I know what it's like to be in need. And you know what? Now I get to, I get to be a part of helping meet that need. I love it. I love it. I don't know about you, but for me, there's no greater fulfillment in life than to see people's lives changed because of the work that Jesus Christ is doing, and I get to be a part of that work. It's just phenomenal. I, too, have been in need. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, guess what? You may not have needs now, but there may come a time when you will be in need. And by the way, we will help you as you have helped others. It's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. Here's the 
third and final reason why I love to give, and it's this. I love to give because I have enough. I have enough. Paul ends this section with a very interesting, powerful quote from the Old Testament in verse 15, and he says this. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Now, Paul is quoting a passage out of Exodus in which the people of God actually had heaven bread, but they called it manna, which means literally, what is it? Because they couldn't describe it, so they just named it, what is it? But it's heaven bread, heavenly bread. And, and, and the instructions by Moses to the people of Israel would go out there when the, in the morning when manna is on the ground and collect what you need. And here's the beautiful thing that happened. Those who collected a lot had just enough, where those who didn't collect quite enough had just enough. Beautiful. They had enough. Enough for what, Dan? Enough to store it? No, they couldn't store it. They tried. There were some old people, some grandmothers in that group who said, we better save this manna for a rainy day. Don't you eat it all. We're going to put it in a jar and put it over here in the cabinet, and we're going to save it. There were some grandmothers in that group, and all of a sudden the next day, they went to get the jar out with the manna in it, and guess what happened to the manna? It had all sorts of maggots and flies, and it was spoiled. No, they had enough for one day. And then they would have enough for the next day, for one day, and then one day, and one day. Jesus speaks of this, of having enough, not necessarily that we have things for us ready for years, and not to say that that's not bad. We ought to be saving for retirement. We ought to be doing those things, preparing for the day when we will no longer be here, or preparing for the day when we will once be able to be retired and not have to work. Amen? Yeah, that's not me. And it's not your fault. <laughs> um, there's just no retirement in the kingdom of God. That was a test. There's no retirement in the kingdom of God. We work and we work. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Anyways, um, I, I, here's the thing. I have enough. One of my most common prayers that I pray to God every single day and, and for the past year, I've been doing this in my prayer life. I have been reciting the Lord's Prayer and, and using that as a basis for my prayers. And when I get to, um, may God's will, may, may his kingdom come, may his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then you get to the part where it says, give us this day our daily bread. And one of my prayers for that is, dear Jesus, thank you so much that not only do you give me what is enough for today, you give me enough for tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. That all I have, to be honest with you, Jesus, right now is all I have are wants. I don't have needs, if I'm really honest about it. I don't have needs. I, I disguise it that way. Oh, I need that phone. I don't need that phone. Oh, by the way, I'm a techie guy. I'm already looking. My Google Pixel 6 is old. It's a year and a half. That's old. 
it's time to look at a new phone. And yes, I'm an Android user and I never apologize for it. <laughs> Get over it. Um, I just, I, if I'm honest with myself, church, I don't have any needs. I just have wants. Yeah, I want that. I have a wish list. Amazon, Amazon's just dangerous, y'all. I have wish lists. My kids have wish lists. I have a bunch of wish lists. That's exactly what it is. Because if it was a need, it wouldn't be in a wish list. Amazon doesn't have a need list. They should start that. There you go. You're welcome, Jeff Bezos. A need list. It would change the psychology, wouldn't it? Oh, I need that kind of thing. I have wish lists. But if I take stock of my life, Every single day, I seem to get through that day with enough food in my stomach, clothes on my back, and a roof over my head. And then some. And then some. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says this, Now godliness combined with contentment brings great profit. You know what my, my problem is sometimes, church? is sometimes I don't combine those two. Godliness with wants. Or wants without godliness. And the reality is, because of Jesus Christ, I have everything I need. And by the way, Paul wrote this, and by the way, he was far worse off than I believe I certainly am, and perhaps maybe all of us are. He was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was cast out, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was abandoned, all of these things, and still he has enough courage and wherewithal to write a simple phrase as simply, now godliness combined with contentment brings great profit. What I mean by contentment is not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. And because of Jesus, I have enough. So I want to conclude this message this morning by sharing with you a quote from John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, and, which is a phenomenal book, by the way. Great allegory of the Christian faith. He says this, You have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's offering forgiveness. I'm not just talking money. Maybe it's offering a piece of advice. I don't know. Maybe it is offering financial assistance. Maybe it's offering a strong back and a weak mind. I don't know. But I love that quote. Because it's about simply being generous. And so this morning, church, I want to come to you, and I know we're a generous people. I come to you this morning in just complete honesty, if you will, and just kind of sharing with you from my heart, as well as from facts. Um, you know that as a church, we've experienced some financial discomfort. Can't even say it right some financial challenges, if you will. 
oh, don't get me wrong, we have enough to keep the lights on, we have enough for all sorts of stuff still, but we're still facing financial challenges. The church, brothers and sisters, needs help. And I don't know what it is that you can do. I I just want to stand here before you and say, whatever you can do, I want to encourage you, please. But let me just say this as a caveat still, do not ever give out of guilt, coercion, or anything other, because as the New Testament shares, God loves a cheerful giver. Oh, and by the way, let me just blow up another thing here. Don't tithe. That's not what Paul introduced here in 2 Corinthians. He introduced proportional giving. Tithing, do you realize this? Out of the Old Testament, was in many ways a tax. How many of us love to pay taxes? I know, right? I I just want to blow your mind. My reading of Scripture is, particularly in the New Testament model of giving, is not tithing, it's proportional giving. Whatever you have, Maybe you can give more than a tithe. Maybe you can't. I don't know. It's none of my business. I just want to ask this of you all. Consider. If you don't give, consider giving. If you already give, maybe you can give a little bit more. I don't know. But here's what I do ask of you. Whatever you choose to do, it's between you and God. And I pray that you do it joyfully, you do it willingly, as much as the church in Corinth wanted to. And more than that, as the churches in Macedonia did do. That's my request. That's my request of you this morning. Does that make sense? I hope that wasn't too painful. But let's spend right now just a few moments in prayer. Because here's the thing when it comes to anything, particularly even money. It is not a numbers issue first and foremost. It is a spiritual one. Let me also give you another thing about the history of this church. And I have just started, no, 18th year, Dennis? I'm just starting my 18th year as pastor here. Yeah, November 1st, whatever that is. Um, (laughs) God has always given this church exactly what it needs exactly what it needs oh but i want so much more i do not lying and i'm confident god will continue to do that still so let's pray and let's continue to acknowledge first and foremost god's generosity and secondly that no matter what all of this is his all of this is about him and our relationship with him and let's go to him right now father and I am just grateful for your generosity, for your hope, for your grace, for you held nothing back, Jesus, in giving your whole self to each and every one of us so that we could have life and life abundantly in you. Father, I pray for every single one of us here this morning. You know our hearts. You know our situations. You know all, Jesus. And I pray this morning that you would just simply guide us, whatever that is, in giving. Whatever it is, Jesus, I pray that you would enlighten us, that you would show us, that you would help us, Jesus, whatever that may look like to help our church family.
Father, we just acknowledge this morning that it is all yours, that we are yours, that whatever we have belongs to you, that whatever this church has, whatever this church does, Lord, belongs to you. It is in your name that we gather, and it is in your name that we minister, and it is your name, Jesus, that we proclaim to everyone who is here in these four walls and beyond. And so, Jesus, I, ha- I pray you have your way with this budget. We have made our plans, but Father, we ask that you determine our steps. And Jesus, if there's a role we can play, I pray that you would show it to us. Thank you for giving us everything that we need and so much more. I pray you would continue to do so, not only in our own individual lives, but in the life of Summit Ridge Community Church. It's your holy and precious name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen.